We are making our way through this psalm. We come now to uh, Psalm 119, verse 129. Psalm 119, 129, down through verse 136. This is stanza number 17 out of 22, so we're almost there, getting our way there. And this stanza is a really powerful one. Some of these later ones, for some reason, maybe I've spent more time in them, (laughs) but they've really resonated with me, and this one is no different. Um, Let me just read this stanza for us. It begins in verse 129. He says, Thy testimonies are wonderful, therefore doth my soul keep them. The entrance of thy words giveth light, it giveth understanding to the simple. I opened my mouth and panted, for I longed for thy commandments. Look thou upon me, and be merciful unto me, as thou usest to do unto those that love thy name. Order my steps in thy word, and let not any iniquity have dominion over me. Deliver me from the oppression of man, so will I keep thy precepts. Make thy face to shine upon thy servant, and teach me thy statutes. Rivers of waters run down mine eyes, because they keep not thy law. I think I've used this illustration before, but and it's a common illustration when people are giving sort of Bible lessons or whatnot. But there is a war that is raging all around you all the time. And it's a war that is raging on the battlefield of your heart. It's something that's common to every person that's alive. Some people are engaged in this conflict. Other people are just kind of sitting on the sidelines. But regardless, this conflict is going on all the time. And what's at stake? I would say our wonder or our awe, our faith, our wonder at God or our wonder at ourselves. That's sort of what the battle, where the battle is raging. In fact, Paul Tripp, the author and speaker, he writes this. He says, the war that rages in all our hearts is a war between the awe of God and the awe of self. And really, Tripp goes on to define sin as just that very thing. Sin is sort of self-awe. You're captivated and captured by the attention you give to yourself. And so therefore, the antithesis to that in this conflict is reorienting your wonder, your awe, towards its right object, which is God himself. And so this is sort of the essence of this war that's going on all around us, is whether uh, what's captivating us, what's capturing our attention, what's holding our faith. And I think we are all fighting in this war. And the world says to give your worship, give your attention, give all that you are to yourself, where the word, as we've seen over and over again, is it's driving you to something else. It's driving you to God himself. It's driving you to give all of that, your attention, your worship, your awe, your wonder, to this person, to God. And so I think this is the best description of our life of faith. It's this ever-deepening, reverential sort of wonder of God as He's revealed in His Word. If, If that's the stakes of the battle, the stakes of the battle is our wonder, our faith, than to uh, win, to overcome, to prevail in this battle, is to drive and grow that faith. 
And we grow our wonder, we grow our, our awe, our faith uh, of God by spending time in God's word. Such is what I think the psalmist is trying to do throughout this entire uh, Psalm 119, is to just capture himself predominantly, but also just capture others too, with just this sense that, look at how wonderful this word is. Such as what he writes right away in the first verse, that his testimonies, God's testimonies, are wonderful. They're just full of discoveries, of awe, of fullness, of truth, of such richness that we will never be able to sort of come to the end of studying these sort of wonderful testimonies. In fact, I was reading and I read the story of this, this 86-year-old Bible scholar He's a Bible teacher, and he, he was writing this missionary to a young, uh, or writing this letter to a young missionary, excuse me. And in this letter, he states that he's been studying God's word for 70 odd years. And he writes at the end of this letter that he's still discovering new traces of God's mysterious love and wisdom, which is an awesome testimony. That we can spend that many years in the word and we still find it fresh, new, and wonderful. Which captures us. And I think that's, that's again the fight. Is to not become uh, complacent. You know that old saying, familiarity breeds contempt. <laughs> we can oftentimes get so uh, familiar with something and it doesn't capture us the way it used to. It's because that old awe, the awe of self has kind of crept in. Even into our Bible reading. Such is why we have to have this sort of concerted effort when, as believers to have this right awe of God which sees the word as something which is truly wonderful and captivating. And I think that's exactly what David is talking about here in this stanza. So really quickly, I think he relays to us this morning these three quick little lessons, three quick uh, things that will help us cultivate this right awe and wonder of God. So first of all, in verse 130 and a couple other verses, I think we see the posture of wonder. The posture of wonder. Look at verse 130. The entrance of thy words giveth light. It giveth understanding to the simple. And then jump down to 135. Make thy face to shine upon thy servant, and teach me thy statutes. Rivers of waters run down mine eyes, because they keep not thy law. I think really uh, evidently here he is, is trying to assert, and he's affirming that there is a posture, there's an approach to the word of God, which is right, and there's one which is not. How we approach this word of God, how we read it, how we seek to understand it, is very, very significant. And you can see this uh, everywhere. Because there's, there's hordes of Bible scholars, so to speak, that also become skeptics. Why? Because they are reading it and they're approaching the scripture incorrectly with sort of their bent, their bias, their view. Now, we all approach the Bible with a bias, but the, problem, but the problem is most of the Bible scholars, so to speak, are approaching it with this bias of disproval, of sort of trying to see all of the ways in which it is uh, in error or uh, how it is sort of in contradiction. And so they're approaching it in a way in which they are not going to see the connections of Scripture. Why? Because they're approaching it, they have a posture that is incorrect, that is wrong. 
They have this wrong approach to the word. And there's many, many intelligent Bible readers and scholars and experts, we might say, that go to it, I would say, with their own wisdom in hand. They go to it with their wisdom, their knowledge clenched almost like with a fist, and they're sort of pressing it into the word. So they're trying to see the word, but they're not reading it as it is. They're reading it with their conceptions, their beliefs, their views. So that you can, if you do that, you can make the Bible say whatever you want, really. (laughs) You can proof text, which is proof texting is just taking a verse and taking verses from 30 different places and making it say what you want instead of just reading it how it is. Again, this, you may already know this, but I'll just reiterate it again. That's why what, uh, I have strived to preach through the Gospel of Mark just as it is, because we're not making up things as we go. <laughs> we're not making it say what we want to say. It's just, here's what the Bible says, and this is what we believe. And I think that's really essentially what we are called to do as believers. When we read it, we're just reading it and saying, look at what it says. Not, here, let me try and force it to say my message, my agenda. Many people go to the word that way, though, with their sort of wisdom, their preconceived notions. But I think that's exactly, uh, turn with me to Matthew chapter 18, really quick. Um, Because I think that's exactly what Jesus is sort of hinting at in the Gospels when he talks about how you have to come to this kingdom as little children. Remember that? Here in Matthew 18, he says that explicitly. He says in verse 3 of Matthew 18, he says, Verily I say unto you, except ye be converted and become as little children, ye shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Whosoever therefore shall humble himself as this little child, the same is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoso shall receive one such little child in my name receiveth me. He's equating this faith, the faith that is intricately tied to the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, which he was preaching. He ties it to this idea of a little child coming up to its daddy. This idea of that sort of sense of awe and wonder and trust and confidence of a little child. That sort of uh, playful innocence. And I think that's exactly what he's hinting at. Because we have that on one hand, and then you have people who come at it not with that awe and that wonder and that confidence. They come at it with their own notions, their own wisdoms, their own conceptions of what the word is trying to say. And so I think that's exactly what Jesus is saying. That's exactly, I think, what David is saying here, where he says, It giveth understanding to the simple. Charles Bridges, the commentator on Psalm 119, he says this, that the man who approaches the word of God in his own wisdom shall not find what the, quote, fool will discover under the teaching of divine wisdom. (laughs) And what is he saying? He's saying that the person who comes at it with his own wisdom will not be made wise because he already thinks he's wise. It's the, the, quote, fool, the one who admits his simplicity, the one who admits that he doesn't have all of the things nailed down, that he doesn't have all of the things figured out. He's the one who's going to be made wise. He's the one, as he says here, will discover the teaching of divine wisdom, such as why David says, it giveth understanding to the simple. It enlightens him. 
And this was his confession. This, David was adamantly just burdened by people here that approach the word with their own conceptions and they force them into the word. That's why he says in verse 136 that rivers of water are streaming from his face, from his eyes. Why? It says, because they keep not thy law. He's so bent up, bent out of shape. He's burdened by people. He's using this incredibly descriptive metaphor of his sort of vexation at people who are not reading the word rightly. They're reading it how they want to read it. He was consumed by that, and it pains him. But it, what is he saying? He's saying that this word, this word where he says, it giveth understanding to the simple, or the phrase before, the entrance of thy words giveth light. He's saying that this word of God that he holds in his hand, which, by the way, wasn't complete, it was partial, so this word, it's not something that only scholars and teachers and the learned can understand. It's one that, at the very opening of it, it gives understanding, it gives enlightenment, it gives enrichment, encouragement, and faith to, he says, the simple. Everyone is able to understand this truth. Isn't that wonderful? That a five-year-old and a fifty-year-old, they are given different messages. They're given the same message. Yeah, maybe we won't talk about, you know, double imputation and justification and those big theological terms to, to a five-year-old. But they can understand that Jesus died for our sins. And faith in that is what equates to eternity with him. The, the simplicity of the gospel is what I think he's driving home at. He's driving this in, and that this is what makes us wonder, is having this posture of one who knows they're a fool, who knows that they don't have all of the wisdom in the world. Bridges, again, I love how he says this. Bridges writes, so astonishing is the power of this heavenly light. The light he's referencing is in verse 130, where he says, it giveth light. He says, Bridges continues, that from any one page of this holy book, a child or even an idiot under heavenly teaching may draw more instruction than the most acute philosopher could ever attain from any other fountain of light. Was he saying? That the person who approaches the scriptures in all of his unlearnedness is more wise than the person who knows all the philosophies of all the different religions of the world. That person is more wise than any other person who has ever existed. Why? Because they have the wisdom of the Father in them. The wisdom of the divine in them. That's just what he's contrasting here. It reminds me, let me read you one other passage. I've referenced this passage before, but it is so applicable here in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Where Paul is writing to these Corinthian believers and he's getting them to see that it's not them, it's not on them, it's, it's what the Spirit does inside them. Remember these verses? Look at verse 22. Paul writes, For the Jews, they require a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified unto the Jews, a stumbling block, and unto the Greeks, foolishness. They didn't see how this idea of God crucifying himself equates to what Paul was saying. This is faith. This is religion. He says to the Jews, they need something else. To the Greeks, they just considered it foolishness. 
verse 24, but unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Verse 25, I love, because he says, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For ye see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. And the base things of the, th- of the world and the things which are despised hath God chosen. Yea, in things which are not, to bring to naught things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. <laughs> I love that. He's chosen the foolish things to confound the wise. And inherent in this, in this whole posture of wonder is the admission of our own foolishness, the admission of our own inability, incapability, our own uh, sort of uh, insufficiency. That's what he's driving at. That's what Paul is driving at. And I think that's what, exactly what David is driving at. Inherent in this idea that you want understanding, that you want this divine light of wisdom, as David is writing, is this inherent admission that you too are one who is simple. Notice he says, it giveth understanding to the simple. So unless you admit that first thing, simple, by the way, is a word in the Hebrew that means open-mindedness or foolishness. Unless you admit that first thing, you won't be able to be given this understanding, this light, this wisdom, such as why David was praying, hey, God, keep me humble. Keep me in this posture of wonder. I would say a childlike wonder at the word, which sees it for what it is. He's not driving home his preconceived conceptions. Lord, make me simple. Make me humble. Make me faithful. This is what will give light. Is this, you notice that phrase, the entrance of the words gives light. It's reminiscent of verse 135, where it's talking about make thy face to shine upon thy servant. It's echoing the same thing. The light of the word is the light of God's countenance turned towards us. You see, the light and understanding of the word is the wonderful fact that God himself has turned towards us in favor, in approval. Not because of anything in us, but because of the one better than us. This is the first lesson that David is hinting at that will cultivate wonder. How do you do that? You have this posture of foolishness, this posture of, of a child, of, an, of one who is innocent and dependent on one who is stronger and wiser than them. This is the posture of wonder. But next, look at verse 131, because I must hasten. This is uh, the second lesson in the text, which is the pursuit of wonder. Look at verse 131. I opened my mouth and panted, for I longed for thy commandments. He gives this very expressive description of the, how this posture aided his pursuit. He says, I opened my mouth and panted, for I longed. He understood his own foolishness, and that's why he was longing, he was panting after God's wisdom. Nothing else in his world, in his existence, could ever quench his soul's thirst for this. 
And that's why he gives this very provocative image of, of one who is urgently and desperately gasping for breath. Like after a long run. Or for me sometimes when I go up the stairs. <laughs> Which is bad. But no, this is the same idea. When you're doing something and you're exerting yourself, you're gasping, you're gulping air. I'll just read it. You don't have to turn there just for sake of time. It's one, uh, Psalm 143 verse 6 because he evokes the same image. 143.6, David says, I stretch forth mine hands unto thee, my soul thirsteth after thee, as a thirsty land. He's evoking this idea of one who is in the desert, who is barren wasteland, who is just seeking and panting after something to refresh him. And this is what David is seeking to nurture throughout his whole discipleship. We get that famous verse, as a deer pants after the water, so my soul longs after you. That's Psalm 42, one a paraphrase. But you get the idea. This is what David is seeking to grow in his life. That a posture of foolishness will drive this pursuit of wonder. It will drive him to know that this is all I have. This is all I want to chase after. I want to gulp, gasp. After your wisdom and your truth. It puts us on this pursuit of God. Which brings me to my, one of my favorite verses in the Psalms. You can just write it down. It's Psalm 63 verse 8. Where David makes this confession. He says, My soul followeth hard after thee. Thy right hand upholdeth me. This Posture of foolishness puts him on this pursuit of following hard, driving after God, pursuing him, running after him, knowing that this God is holding him, knowing that this God, there's way more to know about him than he knows already. And this, I think, is sort of the tension, I would say, the tension of our faith, which is what? Which is that we are satisfied yet dissatisfied at the same time, and that's a good thing. We are satisfied that God has made us right. We can be satisfied and at peace in our justification. But inherent in discipleship, in our growth in faith, is sort of a, uh, a good, a right dissatisfaction with what we know about our God. Again, he's, God is after a relationship with us. Such is why Paul is hinting at, let me read you these verses quickly. This comes from Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 through 14. They will be very uh, familiar to you. Paul writes, Not as though I had already attained, either were already perfect, but I follow after, if that I may apprehend that for which also I am apprehended of Christ Jesus. Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended. But there's one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind, and reaching forth unto those things which are before. I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. You see the tension? He's being apprehended by faith, and he's continually being apprehended by that faith. He's pressing into it. He's pressing toward that prize. The prize is what? Eternal life, which he already has. <laughs> but he's pressing towards it. It's that tension of being satisfied yet dissatisfied, which is healthy and good and right. This is the pursuit of wonder. Knowing that there's forever more that we will not be able to know. That we do not already know, which harkens back to that story at the beginning of the old Bible scholar telling him, I have studied this word for years and I'm still finding new discoveries of the mysteries of the word. 
And this is the heart of every disciple, the heart of every believer. Because this is exactly what God wants. He wants us to run after Him. He wants us to pursue Him. And right wonder, if we are battling for our wonder, a right wonder of God is stoked by a knowledge of how little we know of Him. You want to grow your faith? Approach the word in foolishness and recognize that you don't know everything about this God. And you're not going to it with your own notions. You're saying, God, show me something about yourself. And God will always answer that request. Bridges again. He says, the most advanced believer is most ready to acknowledge how much of the word yet remains unexplored before him. (laughs) The most advanced, skilled theologian ought to be the one who most recognizes and admits all the things he doesn't know and cannot know and cannot make sense of. He's the one who is on the pursuit of wonder. But thirdly, quickly... The third lesson here is the purpose of wonder. Look at verse 132. Look thou upon me and be merciful unto me as thou usest to do unto those that love thy name. Order my steps in thy word and let not any iniquity have dominion over me. Make thy face, or excuse me, deliver me, verse 134, excuse me, deliver me from the oppression of man. So will I keep thy precepts. This posture, this pursuit It brought about God's intended purpose, which is what is to show us the type of God that we have. It's always everywhere. God's purpose to show us the type of God that he is. And what type of God is he? Verse 132, a God who looks on us in mercy. Or verse 133, a God who orders our steps. He establishes them. He sets them straight. He firmly fixes them. Or verse 134, a God who protects us. All of that, which is to say this, the purpose of the word is to show us that we have a God who's intimately involved in our lives. You want to stoke some wonder in your life? Think about the fact that the creator of everything, the ruler of everything, is involved with where you are. He is seeking out your good. He's not disinterested. He's not aloof. He's not indifferent to where we are. He's actually keenly aware and very intimately concerned and interested for us. Nothing Nothing in life should make us wonder more than knowing that the God of everything sees us, notices us, and cares for us. It reminds me of Psalm 8, where David himself makes that glorious, just, he can't even express himself, where he says, God, what is man that thou art mindful of him? He is just expressing his wonder at the fact that the ruler of the stars is also the redeemer from our sins. That this God of everything is intimately aware and concerned for you and for me. It's that famous thing, that I, the, 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 the famous chapter in Matthew chapter 10. I hearken back to this again, not to beat a dead horse, but to drive our wonder. Which is what? He says, do you not think that I will care for you? I'm paraphrasing again. But Matthew 10 where he's saying um, that the sparrow falls to the ground. You don't think I noticed the sparrow? I know how many hairs that are on your head. 
You don't think that the Heavenly Father is going to care about you? That's how much He cares about you. He knows how many hairs are there or are not there. (laughs) This is the care of our God. The care of the God who loves us. This war for the wonder of our souls. It's one as we are captivated by these testimonies of the word. Which are, as David himself has said, are wonderful. They capture us. They captivate us. Because we read of these incredible truths. The purpose of the word is to, is to show us this wonderful, wonder-working God that we have. Where in Galatians it says that that same God became a curse for us. How in 2 Corinthians 5 it says that that same God became sin for us. For sinners. This is what breeds wonder. This is what uh, uh, prevails in this battle for our awe. A posture of foolishness. A pursuit after faith. It brings about these purposes. It shows us our wonder-working God. That that same God is on our side. That the God of everything is the God of your heart and your life and your soul. Let us pray.